Good morning. We're looking at uh, Jesus' discussion with his followers on the, um, the mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee, uh, Mount Beatitudes in Israel. And um, he will say, blessed are those who mourn. I understand what's come before. This phrase seems very much out of place, especially when we put it in the context in which it was given. And what's happening, all heaven is breaking loose. Uh, crowds of severely ill, gravely ill people have limped, hobbled, and been carried to Jesus, and he has been healing them without exception and apparently without effort. A uh, sea of human suffering is breaking upon Jesus and is returning whole and sound, wave after wave. And in the wake of putting pain and suffering to flight on a large scale, Jesus gathers his followers to himself, not those he healed, but those who accompanied him on this healing crusade. Uh, and within the context of gasps of joy and shouts of delight, Jesus says this, blessed are those who mourn. It doesn't really seem to fit. It's, mourning is the expression, as we'll see. It's not just experiencing something inwardly. It's expressing it outwardly. The word Jesus says doesn't say, blessed are those who feel sad. That's where it begins. But the word for mourn is to get out here what's in here. It refers to an external expression of an inward condition. It means that those who get outside the sadness that is inside these are the blessed. Blessed are those who experience grief and express it outwardly. Um, we have different comfort levels with grief, with the expression of emotion in general. And mourning is an expression of an emotion. And among the Beatitudes, I think it's unique to be poor in spirit, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be persecuted. These aren't really feeling-based, but mourning is. And in that sense, it's a little bit strange. It sounds a little bit odd in the context. Um, we have different comfort levels with it. And when Jesus ascribes blessedness to mourning and comfort we receive from the Father, which we do so, he's telling us something pretty striking. When I was in, um, Lisa was a friend of mine in high school, and I went away to school at the University of Pennsylvania, and while I was away, she was stricken with the disease and very quickly died. And I wasn't able to go back for the funeral. I remember, though, that when I came back into town, I went by her house and I wanted to visit with her mother to express my condolences, and I did so. And there was a, she led me into the um, living room, and there was a table set up with a lot of pictures on it. And so she sat me down. And we started to go through pictures. And I was happy to do so. And, and I felt like I was kind of doing it for her. You know, so she wanted to share pictures, and I wanted to be respectful. And so I kept on looking at the pictures. And she kept on clipping one picture after another. And I had been there longer than I probably would have chosen to be in terms of looking at the pictures when I really started to look at them. Not just to be nice to her, but I started to notice and I started to remember. 
I was less conscious of her and more conscious of the memory. And she kept on flipping the picture. And then a tear came to my eye. And I started to cry. And she put her hand on my shoulder and just stayed there like that. A short while after that, I left. And I got outside, and it occurred to me, I went there to give her something. But she had me come to give me something. She gave me space to mourn. She gave me time to mourn. When we mourn, we have to slow down. We have to think of things. We have to think of people. We have to think of thoughts that feel uncomfortable to us. Mourning isn't fun. Moving out of that thing, I, it was, it was a, a, an experience that I'll, I'll never forget. Grief is a painful but a necessary process. They associate a process with grief that begins or you move through stages. There's denial in which the reality that this person or whatever you're grieving has happened just doesn't hit your consciousness. And then there's anger. There's a sense of, why? Why should have done this? I should have done that. They should have done this. And then there is bargaining. Bargaining in which we try to, well, I'll do this and I'll do that. And we try to limit the impact of the grief. And then there's depression where we can't, denial, anger, and bargaining don't work. And then we begin to feel and we get sucked down into these feelings. And then there's acceptance. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. There's a, a, a process that we can't really speed up, and all of us experience it in different ways. Um, we pay a price when we short-circuit it. We get stuck in denial and anger. We get stuck in hypocrisy and, and judgment. There was a minister who tells a story, big church, mega church, and he was under the impression that if you were spiritually fit and physically fit, you were bulletproof. And so he was spiritually fit and and physically fit, and, and then his dad died. And his father lived some ways away. And he wasn't able to spend as much time thinking about this whole process as he would have wanted to. He ended up saying, talking about skimming, and that's what he did. He went to the funeral, but he couldn't stay there long. He had to get back to his church. And he describes skimming over the surface of the things that he didn't really have time to dive into. And in the months that followed, he noticed a change. He noticed a change in himself. That his capacity to enter into emotions was diminishing. He kind of didn't care about the ministry that much, and he really didn't care about things he had always cared about, and it really was strange to him. And he went to a counselor, and the counselor ended up indicating to him, well, there's your problem. Your dad, remember your dad died, and you skimmed right over the surface of that. And, and because you skimmed, all the emotions are kind of locked up in there together. And what he said, I want you to make a trip. I want you to go back to where your father was buried. And I want you to spend some time there. I want you to think about him. Maybe sit there. And he did so. And he mourned. He grieved. He not only felt sad, but he got out here what was in here. And in the months that followed, guess what he figured out? The emotions came back. He, we sequester mourning. It's uncomfortable, but it, it's one of the emotions that is with the rest of the emotions. And it's something difficult to give time to. 
Um, mourning extends not only to people we've lost, but to life choices that we make. I remember talking to a woman, and one of the things in um, the 12 steps is a step where you make an inventory of your fears and your resentments and some of your behavior that rose from those things, and you express this to somebody. So, and, and I'm one of the people in town who has the opportunity, the privilege really, of being in that place so that people are expressing. And this woman, I remember once, she was expressing her fifth step to me. And she was talking about doing this, that, and the other. And she talked about having come to a place where she became pregnant and she chose to get an abortion. And so she did that. And she was just kind of, she ran through that and she started to go on to something else. And I said, wait a minute, could we, could we back up a little bit? Um, could you tell me about that? Could you give me some details? Tell me about what it felt like. What it felt like to be in the place that you had to go to the clinic. Tell me what it was like when you walked in. Who greeted you? What did it feel like? What were you aware of? And she started to do that. Um, she talked to me about skidding out of control. She talked about the quickness and how confusing it all was. Uh, she related what became clear when she entered the clinic after she made the choice. And again, she told me that she didn't eliminate an inconvenience. She took a life. But she didn't have a lot of space for that. And then she talked about going outside and, and what it felt like. And she started to mourn. She got out here what was in here. She not only felt sad, but she expressed it outwardly. And on the far end of that, she experienced comfort. Says, Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. She experienced it. A comfort that comes from those who express inwardly what they express outwardly what they experience inwardly. Mourning is painful. We do our best to keep it at bay. In fact, you know what we do to keep mourning at bay? We bury sad. And there's some good things that we can use to bury sad. We use mad to bury sad. We use mad to bury sad. And when something is sad, when something's taking you, it's, it's, it's preferable sometimes to get angry at ourselves and to get angry at something else. And if you look underneath what they say, anger is a secondary emotion. If you trace the roots of anger, you know what you're going to find? Something more painful, something that feels a little bit more vulnerable. You're going to find pain and sadness. If mad is on the surface, sad is underneath. We use mad to bury sad. Sometimes we can use glad to bury sad. That's what addiction is about. If I'm sad about this, that, or the other, if I tie one on, or if I do this or that or the other, my affect raises for a little while, and I don't feel sad. I can use glad to bury sad. I feel great when I tie one on, or I get this, that, or the other, but the only you end up 
having a mood-altering, an addiction to a mood-altering substance, and all the while, the sadness isn't going anywhere, and comfort's not going. We're just submerging it. Sometimes, you know, we can use, we not only use mad to bury sad, or glad to bury sad, we can use bad to bury sad. Some people, and JC's going to come up, and talk about uh, individuals who act out. They get in a lot of fights and a lot of struggles because if they're bad, they don't have to feel sad. Um, the problem with burying sad is that when we distance ourselves from mourning, we distance ourselves from comfort because blessed are those who mourn. They get comforted. Yes, I did. Well, you can't see. It's a cool drawing, too. Cool drawing. This is scribble, though. Let me read a passage to you. Um, it's a passage to me that's real important. Um, actually, I don't even think Mike remembers. At one point in time, we did a, when we first started Hope, we moved and from another church, and um, I was asked to put together a, a small group for small group leaders. And... Um, and we had developed a core of uh, eight values that kind of are the, maybe even still now, things we want to provide for as leadership for the flock. And one of the lessons that I did was on this passage I'm going to read to you because I think it ties in crazy good to the, to the message. Blessed are the those that mourn for they receive comfort. And in Second Corinthians first chapter, verses 3 through 4, Paul says something crazy. He says, praise, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all compassion, the Father of all comfort. Those are, those are embedded in the Old Testament sort of ideas about God, but in a kind of little different twist. The God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort our, we ourselves have received from God. Hmm. So let's think about this. The first thing I want you to think about is um, comforters are converts. Write that down. Comforters are converts. And what I mean by that, that, comforters are those people who've had the capacity to receive comfort. Comforters are converts because they have experienced brokenness enough that, that someone or some group of people came around them. The image... <laughs> I, I was trying to not do ADD, man. I was trying to. I was trying not to. Uh, see, that's going to bug me now. Like, could somebody shut that off? <laughs> yeah. So the idea of comfort is an interesting idea because 
It presumes brokenness, presumes brokenness. And I guarantee you, you're going to experience brokenness in at least three ways. You're going to experience brokenness in terms of your own character. And all of us have character defects. All of us have those areas in our life that we, we're crooked or dark. I, I, don't, um, I don't know of anybody who's fault-free. And, and some, of, some of the way we do it in the church is we make the big character defects on the list so we can say, at least I'm not like that. Except for when God says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And he says, all sin leads to death, which is, he, there's no category. So, matter of fact, these, this sermon was preached to flip that hierarchy stuff upside down. People heard this sermon and went, what? Because he flips it upside down. So some of us say, well, shoot, at least I, I, haven't, I don't have affairs. But that same person's spouse is saying, yeah, but you got a temper, dude. Or you're judgmental. Or you're critical. Or you talk about people. And in the kingdom, those will kill you just as much as lust and murder and thievery. Blessed are they that mourn. So character stuff. The second way in which you'll experience grief is when your character affects someone you love. So it's one thing for me to hurt me. It's another thing for me to hurt my kid. It's another thing for me to behave in a manner that hurts my wife. I'd rather hurt me, which is goofy, but character character defects affect people. The third way you guaranteed experience this, and it's part, there's two parts to it. When someone you love has character defects, and you can't do a dang thing about it. And you, and you have to watch. Oh, dude, really? Here we go, man. And I can't help my daughters, or I can't help my wife, or I can't help my cousin, or whoever it is I love. And, it, and tied to that is when circumstances, outside circumstances, um, impact you or your loved ones in a way that you got no nothing in your pockets. Blessed are they that mourn. See, the word there, troubles, implies those things. It implies grief that's experienced inwardly, which is emotional, mental, spiritual incapacity to move something powerlessness God if if you can I, I got nothing it also presumes grief that comes from an outward impact from atrocity calamity there's some implication in the word trouble that or there's another word used in the same passage a little farther along that implies physical pain and death. Right? The reason we experience grief inwardly and outwardly is because any of those four things are losses. We didn't expect them, or we did expect them, but we can't stop it. And it puts us in a position of grief. 
uh, I talk sometimes about my college life because that's when I became a Christian. Before I was a Christian, I came to the school in the country, and my mistake was I chose a school that's surrounded by corn and wheat, and I'm allergenic, asthmatic. That's not good. So I show up. Oh, and I'm a city kid. So my roommate was showing me, walking me to the gym at dawn, and I was hearing crickets, and I was jumping because I didn't know what those were. And he was laughing at me, and he got his he got his boys to walk with me, so they was all cracking up because I was walking across the field like that. But I was invited to come to a school and try out, and if I if I made the team, I won a scholarship. And I'm about six weeks into this process, and I'm dying. And I call home, and I'm busted. And this is external. This is calamity that occurs from the outside, but it's causing loss because this very thing I wanted to do, I don't know if I can do it because I can't breathe. It, it, to walk upstairs about killed me. So running 440s and half miles, I'm dying. So I called a person that I know cares about me the most who's 11 hours away, my grandmother, and say, I think I'm coming home. And her response to that is, what? No, you're not. I said, yeah, no, I am coming home. And I didn't tell anybody but a couple of ball players. Now, comfort comes. So I'm planning my trip. I call my mom, and my grandmother says, I don't got no money. So I had to scrounge up some money for a bus ticket. And so I was collecting money, thinking when I get enough, I'm going home. And a couple of players heard about it. Now, at this point, I don't know if I'm even going to make the team because there's 40, 40 freshmen and sophomore and junior college transfers trying out. And this tall guy named Mike Bayek comes. Mike Bayek's 6'8", post player from central, south central Kansas. And he says, dude, I heard you're, gonna, you're trying to go home. I said, yeah. He walks in my room, and I'm looking at him. I didn't know this about him. He said, hey, man, uh, how come? Now, this was a setup question. I said, because I can't breathe, man. He said, oh, you, you, and he pulled, reached in his pocket, and pulled out his inhaler. He said, you have asthma. I said, yeah. He said, dude, I'm telling you. Now, the coach didn't tell me this, but I'm watching you play. You're making this team, dude. We need you on this team. You can't go home. I'm like, Mike, I'm going home, dude. You of all people know what it's like not to breathe. He said, no, nah, man, you ain't going home, dude. I'm going to go talk to the coach, and we're going to get you to the doctor. Because you can make the team. We need you on the team. Now, he was comforted and then provided me comfort. And it was the kind of comfort that wasn't just a consolation. He didn't say to me, Jace, I know how it feels to have asthma, man. It sucks, man. If you're going to go home, I understand that. He provided encouragement, which is the comfort that Paul's talking about is a little bolder comfort. It's the comfort that says, hey, man, I know I'm with you. Move through it. Move through it. Now, the problem is my response is to move away. Some of you's response is to turn away. I'm sitting with three young men 
All three of them have lost someone. One of the kids is taking group has lost his dad. All three of the kids, the boys, have lost parents to addiction at early ages. And so the young man who's talking lost his dad due to uh, alcoholism or something like that. The two other young men listening, one kid lost his father in prison to another deal, and the other kid lost his mother to a car accident, all alcohol-related. So the kid talking starts to say, we ask you, you want to talk about your drug stuff? Yeah. You want to talk about family? No. The other kid who had lost his dad in prison says, hey, man, we don't talk about this stuff. He's protecting this kid. Now, I'm the goofy group leader, and I say to him, yeah, no, no, dude, we we go in there. We go in there. So the young man proceeds to talk. The two other kids listening start doing all kinds of squirming, and the one kid who says no is glaring at me. And I know why he's glaring at me. He ain't glaring at me because he's happy. He ain't even glaring at me because he's mad. He's glaring at me because he's sad, but he covers up sad with what? He keeps saying, hey, man, we ain't supposed to go here, dude. I'm like, nah, man, we going here, man. We going here. I'm an old dude. We going here. <laughs> so they start to talk. The whole room changes, to which this kid says, hey, man, I don't even know if I like being here today, man. I said, you ain't supposed to like being here today. So this kid talked, and the two other young men began to talk. So I asked them a question tied to what Mike's talking about. I said to them, all three of you have lost somebody significant at an early age, but it doesn't look like it. They said, why not? I said, could it be mad because two of the boys have engaged in gangbanging kind of fighting? And beating people up. One of the boys has cuts on his wrist. Not cuts across his wrist, but the kind that kill. Cuts, cuts down his wrist. The other boy looks psycho. Eyes roll. He looks at you. His eyebrows swoop up. He looks crazy. I, I ain't buying it, dude. I ain't buying it. And the other kid who isn't, doesn't do anger to cover it up, he does pity and poor me cover up. He's head down and he's rocking. And I say, could it be you use those things to cover up your loss? To the boy, all three of them say yes. One kid says, why do you think I fight anything that moves? I said, wow. I asked the kid who had group, is that true? He said, yeah. If they're going to beat me up, and if I'm going to lose people, I'm going to make somebody lose something too. Now, you could say, well, that was the boys J.C. worked with. They troubled. I'm looking at some troubled people right now. You just do a different thing. Blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. Let me read you something as I start to come to the end of this thing. 
It says this. It's called the risk of love. I'm going to change the word love to comfort. The risk of comfort. To comfort anyone is to provide hope in him or for him always. From the moment at which we begin to judge anyone, we limit our confidence in him. We limit our capacity to reflect hope. From the moment at which we we identify him, point him out, get in his way, we reduce him to that. And we cease to love or comfort him. And he ceases to be able to become better. We must dare to provide comfort in a world that doesn't know how to love or provide comfort. We must dare to do that. Charles Spurgeon says he he was uh, traveling and he noticed this. While riding through the country, I saw a farmer with a weather vane on the arrow which of which was inscribed these words, God is love. I turned in at the gate and asked the farmer, what do you mean by that? Do you think God's love is changeable and that it veers about as the arrow turns in the wind? The farmer said, oh, no. I mean that whichever way the wind blows, God is still love. Blessed are they that mourn. For the comforted becomes the comforter. Comforters are comforters. Amen. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, you think of people with whom it's easy to mourn. Think about those people. People that when you start to pour out your heart, they lean toward you. They are open. They let you talk. They are empathetic. When you think of those individuals, one individual that probably doesn't make the list, but is God. God. And he's one who would tell us, blessed are those who mourn before him. Because those who mourn before God are comforted by God. Um, Again, we all have different capacities to mourn, but here's what... uh, God says, look what it says in Hebrews 4.13 to 5.2. That nothing is in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, but we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Um, when it says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, we talk about the word parousia and what it means to speak freely with him. So what God would have us to do is this, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's not just coming and being in that place, knowing that you belong there. It's a comfort that it's a confidence that makes its way into speaking. That's what it is. It's, 
It's not just being with God. It's speaking freely with him. That's what it means to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Permission to speak freely? Yes. You've been given permission to speak freely. That's what the word means. And what it says, those who approach the throne of grace with confidence receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When it talks about help, it's talking about what a rope does. And again, the help, when a, a ship is in a place where it's being torn apart, rent asunder, what they do, they have this thing called frapping the boat, and it can hold things together like these two sticks. That rope is frapping those two pieces of wood. So what they would do is when a ship became um, in peril, it's, it's the, the forces are going to pull it apart. What they would do, take a bigger rope than this and put it around the boat, and that's called frapping the boat. And that's the image that it's creating here. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Speak freely before God. And what we end up getting, we end up finding mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Grief has a tendency to pull us apart. And what God gives us is that which will keep us together. Keep us together so that we can hold on both to hurt and to hope because they are both real, aren't they? They're both real. We all have things that we grieve over things that we do to ourselves, things we do to somebody else, something someone has done to us. And those things hurt, and we hold on to the hurt. But God causes all things, and so we hold on to the hope. And if you want to be able to hold on both to hurt and to hope, there's a simple formula. Speak freely with God. Mourn before him. Speak freely with him about the hurt, about how disillusioned you are. Speak honestly with him. Because as we'll see, he already knows it anyways. In fact, what is it that keeps us from speaking freely with God? What is it that keeps us from Why do we not speak freely with one another? Pretense. Fear. And shame. Why don't we speak freely to one another? Because we have a tendency to pretend with one another. Now, not everybody is safe to open up to, but God is, and there's others who are, and sometimes we get so stuck in pretending that we can't tell anybody anything real. Pretense can keep us from speaking freely. Would you agree? And would you agree that there's a tendency we have to do that with God? You know, so when you think about praying to God, and again, thank God, that's fine. But if you're not feeling particularly thankful, and you talk to God in prayer, and the only thing that comes out is, God, thank you for today and how wonderful it is. No, today is not a wonderful day. And God knows it. And rather than saying the real thing, we say the right thing. The right thing. You know what God wants? Real things. He wants real things. Say real things to him. You know what you might find? That something comes up that doesn't feel all that comfortable to say. I'll tell you what, God already knows it's there. And when you bring it up, you're just putting yourself in a place where you can get, where you can get, Comfort, comfort, comfort. We pretend or we become afraid. I can't say that to God or we become ashamed. Um, Let's approach the trace with confidence. We may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
And that's the image. That which ties us to God. And you know what ties you to God? Honesty. Morning. Expressing in here. Knowing that he's okay and he's safe to speak to. Um, it says here in this thing that we prepare for communion. Um, because of what he knows, we don't need to pretend. That's what it says. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom must give account. God already knows what you're thinking. He already knows what you're feeling. It makes sense, therefore, doesn't it, that we would express out here what he already knows we're feeling? We have a tendency to think, oh, I couldn't say that to God. He already knows it. So when you understand what he knows, you don't need to pretend. Okay? Sometimes it's not pretending that gets in the way, it's fear. Because we, you know, it wasn't a good thing, and we might not feel spiritually right on top of things. But the fact is, a high priest, the reason why you need to go to a high priest is because high priests are God's ordained professionals at dealing with sinners. If you're not a sinner, you have no business with a high priest. Don't, don't bother with it. But if you're a sinful person, and because of the grief you feel, you do things to yourself, or you do things to others, and you might be afraid to speak to God about those things, God, I hate to tell you, but I'm doing this and that and this. And I'm doing this and that and the other thing, and I'm afraid to tell you because, well, you don't need to be afraid because of who he is. When we understand who he is, we don't need to be afraid. When we understand what he knows, we don't need to pretend. When we understand who he is, we don't need to be afraid. For many of us, our issue is not pretense or fear. You know what it is? Shame. Shame. You know what the face, the face for shame is? This. This is the universal face for shame. You know what I'm doing? No. I can't see you looking at me. Because I can't believe I'm thinking and doing the things I'm thinking and doing. And we're afraid to come to God because we're ashamed to come to him. And, but when you understand how he feels, what does it say here? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with, do you hear that? Jesus is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. Let me tell you what some sympathy looks like. If you have a thing to tell me, here's what sympathy looks like. Tell me about it. It moves towards. And I can handle what you're saying. That's what sympathy looks like. If you're telling me something difficult, sympathy looks like this. Hmm. And there's dialogue. And I can accept this. And I tell me more. Tell me more. And we understand how he feels. You don't need to be ashamed. What this table is about, it's an invitation. Speak freely with him. It, it tells us about what God did to display his love for you. God demonstrates his own love toward you and that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And that, what that's supposed to extend to is understanding that he died for you when you were still a sinner. He invites you to come to him as you are. So here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to leave your troubles underneath the chair. 
when you come to this table. And I don't want you to wear your Sunday best. I want you to bring your things with you to this table. Your fears, your shame, your mourning. Don't leave it under there and pretend to be more than you are. Take those things with you and go to the table because that's where how God would have you come. And he would tell you, you don't need to pretend. He already knows. You don't need to be afraid. He's a high priest. He's great at dealing with sinners. And you don't need to be ashamed because he sympathizes with your weaknesses. So you take your stuff. And you get the bread and the juice. Sometime during the course of the next song, drink the bread. Drink the bread. Good luck with that. Drink the juice. Eat the bread. And I want you to think of three things. I want you to think of three things. And there's an article in here from Base for Grace, if you want to read through that. I want you to think about what he knows. Because when you understand what he knows, you don't need to pretend. You know what I want you to think about? I want you to think about who he is. He's a high priest. He's great at dealing with sinners. And I want you to think of how he feels. He sympathizes with your weaknesses. So you get the the bread and the juice sometime during the course of the song. And remember his love for you and the three things that are true because of that love. Will you pray for us? Father, I want to thank you for your character. You tell us that you would have us come to the throne of grace to speak freely with you. When we are honest about things that hurt, things that we do, things that we do to others, things that others have done to us. Um, It's hard for us to say real things to you. But I guess what that means, and it's never all or nothing, as we learn to tell real things to you, we get real comfort and we have real things to give others. So the comfort you give us, we end up giving away. So I guess I'd ask, would you help us slowly, progressively, to be more comfortable with you? Would you remind us, help us to think about what you know, nothing in all creation is hidden from you. Everything is uncovered and laid bare. So you invite us to be open. You tell us, don't pretend. But you remind us about who you are, the great high priest, a professional at dealing with sinners. You deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Because when we remember that, we don't need to be afraid. Would you help us to understand how you feel? You sympathize with our weaknesses. Because when we understand that, when we remember that, we don't need to be ashamed. Pretense, fear, and shame keep us from speaking freely. Remembering that helps us to overcome those things, to come before you honestly, to receive things from you that we can express to others. In Jesus' name, help us. Amen.